You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And let's first just think the context of this passage. Um, Mark chapter 8 through verse 10, those three chapters, uh, if you want to just a way of thinking about those three chapters, you might think of them like this. It is Jesus discipling his disciples. That's what he's doing. Jesus is discipling his uh, disciples. He's teaching them. And in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, Jesus lays down a crucial lesson. He is teaching them something. If they're ever going to, to be fruitful uh, in ministry, in the kingdom of God, if that's ever going to be happen, if it's ever going to happen, they've got to get this lesson down. In, in these 10 or 11 verses, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to become great. How to become great. How to become great in the kingdom of God. What greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. And Jesus does this by taking them on three sort of movements in this passage. He exposes their desire for greatness. Then he redirects that desire for greatness. And then he shows them what they really need if they're ever going to become great. So I just want to take this passage in those parts. The desire for greatness exposed. We'll start there. Now, it's interesting, right above this passage, so, so we're starting in verse 35, but if you, if you go up two or three verses, starting in verse 32, uh, it's interesting to see what is happening, uh, what, what the lead-in to this moment is. Uh, and in verse 32, Jesus is walking with his disciples to Jerusalem. That they have, they have turned, and that's the direction that they are going. And for the third time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has looked at his disciples, and he's told them what's going to happen when they get there. When they get to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. He says it up there in verses 32 through 34. I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. Jesus is talking about his humiliation. He's about to be falsely accused, condemned, then crucified. In a lot of ways, those three or four preceding verses, Jesus is exposing the deepest parts of his heart to his disciples. He's showing them what's about to happen. How, how he's feeling and thinking about what's about to happen. Now, think about that. That's, that's just happened. Jesus has taken his heart, and he's laid it open before his 12 closest friends, his disciples. Now, what happens next? Starting in verse 35. Immediately following that, Jesus exposing his heart to them, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Every parent knows that's a terrible game to play, right? <laughs> that game does, that never goes well. That never, that never is a good option. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Um, they're not lacking in confidence, that's for sure. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. So think about what's happening here. Jesus has just exposed his heart to them. 
That's the preceding passage, 32 through 34. But that didn't phase James and John. Uh, They quickly moved right past Jesus' humiliation and right to their exaltation. Jesus, you get the game, right? We're going to ask the question. That's our job. Here's your job. You just say yes to whatever we ask. That's the game. Jesus, you get the game, right? And so they ask the question, when you set up your kingdom, let us, your boys, let us be on your right and left side. Let's just go ahead and nail this down, Jesus. Then we can go tell the other 10 what we've decided, right? This is what's going on in this passage. Now, to be fair to James and John, they weren't the only ones asking that question. They weren't the only ones concerned with greatness. If you back the truck up one chapter uh, to, to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, Jesus, for the second time in the gospel of Mark, is exposing his heart to his disciples. He, he tells them in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, we're going to Jerusalem and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be condemned and ultimately cut down in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. And the, the very same thing happens. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus outs them. He, he busts them in their conversation. So he's just told them, I'm about, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm about to die. And then uh, a little bit later, they're walking along the road. He, he sort of overhears the conversation, and, and Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they, the disciples, they kept silent. And here's the reason they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, They all wanted greatness. It wasn't just a James and John thing. They were all deeply concerned about greatness. And this is why in chapter 10, when the rumor mill makes it back to the rest of the disciples, the other 10 disciples of what James and John had done, in verse 41, they are indignant at James and John. Now, why are they indignant? It's because James and John are making the uh, the sort of grab for greatness that they want. They want what James and John are asking. That's the reason that they're indignant. Now, think about what Mark 9 and 10 are. are, Think about the picture it's painting for us. These two chapters are showing us that deep down in all the disciples' heart is a desire for greatness. It's in all of their hearts. Not, Not just one or two of them, but all 12 of them have a deep down desire for greatness. Now comes uh, the interesting turn in the passage. What is Jesus going to do? James and John have just made their grab for greatness. They, they've just grabbed for it. The other 10, all 12 actually now, are on their way to the octagon to work all that out, right? That they're all indignant at one another. And what is Jesus going to do in this passage? Think about you. What would you do in this passage? You're dealing with these 12 people, all of them so caught up and, and just drunk on a desire for greatness what would you do? Well, here's what Jesus does. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So they're rulers of the Gentiles, and they use that position to, to, to lord it over those under them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. That's what they do, but that it should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, but, but whoever would be great among you. I want to stop right there in verse 43. And I want you to notice, this is one of the key insights of this passage. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't renounce their desire for greatness. 
He, he doesn't look at them and say, I am offended, upset. You need to be rebuked because you're desiring greatness. That's not what he does. Now, now why does he not do that? Uh, well, because it's, that, that desire for greatness in the disciples, that desire for greatness was put there by God and for God. That desire is a, is a God-planted thing in them. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God put our first parents in the garden, and he put in them, our first parents, Adam and Eve, he put in you, he put in the disciples, a desire for greatness. And we have always, um, God has always intended that desire for greatness to, to come out of us in God's way. So, so we're to look at how do we fulfill that desire for great, greatness? How do we satiate that? God has always said, I've put that in you, now I want you to satiate it and fulfill it my way. But if you know the narrative of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents sinned against God. And that first sin broke, twisted, distorted everything, including that desire for greatness. So now, rather than, than greatness coming out God's way, it has become greatness the world's way. In essence, I will climb over and claw over everybody to get to the top. Right? This, is, this is what's happened post-Genesis chapter 3. So Jesus in this passage is saying yes to their desire for greatness, yes to that, but no to, the, to their way of greatness. He has no problem with them desiring it. He has a huge problem with how it is they're trying to become great. But I want you to see that. Rather than renouncing their desire for greatness, he redirects their desire for greatness. He redirects it. Now, let's think about that redirection, the desire for greatness redirected. He's saying here, you want to be great? I'm glad you want to be great. You want to be great because I've put that in you. I put that desire in you. But, but now let me show you how to do that, how to actually become great in my eyes. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you. So if you want to be great, and I know you do, Jesus is saying, let me show you the way. But whoever would be great among you must. That's an exclusive word. There's no workarounds. There's no other ways to get there. Must. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must. Ex exclusive word again. No, no workarounds there. Must be slave of all. Now, now think about what Jesus is showing his disciples. He's showing them that greatness isn't defined by how much money, power, prestige you accumulate. Greatness doesn't equate into your ability to claw your way to the top or, or your ability to put others beneath you. Jesus is saying here, if you want to be great, here's the way. You must, you must be a servant. If you want to be great, you have to be small. So, so small that you can humbly bow below others and serve them. But he takes it a step further. If you want to be great, it's not just that you must become a servant. You must be a slave. Could Jesus use any more offensive language? You must become a, a, a slave. To be great, you have to lose all rights to your life. 
Like everything you hold dear, the non-negotiable, all of that, no, you have to let go of all of those rights to your life. I mean, think of what a, what a slave, how a slave lives. A slave lives to give away their life in radical acts of service and sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, that, that's the posture you have to develop. I have no rights to my life. I, I am here to, to serve other people, to put myself below other people, to give my life away to other people. This is the way to greatness. But Jesus takes it even a step further. It's not just that you must be a servant or you must be a slave. At the end of verse 44, he attaches these two words. You must be a slave, here are the two words, of all. Of all. Not of some, not not of those who are deserving that you serve them. Not of those who are um, easy to serve. Not of those who serve you and love you and accept you. Not just those who um, it sort of pays to serve. He says, no, not, not a servant of some, but a servant of, of all, of those who, who give you nothing in return, of those who it, it, it just makes you kind of cringe on the inside to think about serving them. He says, that is the way to greatness. That, that is the only way to greatness. If you want to be great, that, that path to greatness runs through the valley of the cross. He's saying here that the lower you go, the greater you become. Isn't that something? That the lower you go, the greater you become. Just ask yourself the question, do you believe that's the way to greatness? Do you believe that? There's always been competing perceptions of greatness. Always. There's always been other ways to try to achieve greatness. Jesus addresses that in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, here's worldly greatness right here. This is how the world pursues it. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile, Gentiles lord it over them, that they use their power and position to push others down, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is how our culture thinks about greatness. Greatness is defined by those at the top, not the bottom. Greatness is defined by those who exercise their rights and authorities, not by those who give it away. Our culture has an upside-down way of of pursuing greatness. If you just want to sum up the world's way to greatness, it's real simple. To make servants of all. That's the world's way. How, How can I get servants beneath me? Greatness is getting above people and getting people below us. If you just look at Webster's, just a common dictionary, the word greatness is defined this way, to be chief or preeminent over others. So if we want to be great athletically, we become better than other people. If we want to become great academically, we make more A's than other people. If we want to become great in business, we have a bottom line that is better than other people right? It's just, we're there and people are here. That's how the world thinks about greatness. But it's not Jesus's way to greatness. Jesus's way to greatness is not making servants of all. It's becoming a servant of all. That's Jesus's way. Becoming a servant of all. Now, let's not assume anything. Let's actually ask, is that how we think about greatness? Think about the last 10 times you've used the word great. Are, are you calling great what Jesus calls great? N- not getting high, but getting low. So low that you can serve 
everyone, that you can become a slave of all. Is that how you think about greatness? And, and let's, not, let's not assume, let's ask, does, does, that, does that view of greatness, Jesus' view, would it describe your life? Is that how you see your life? I mean, think about that one person that you don't want to serve and you getting under them to serve them. Is that you? If other people were going to describe you, is that how they would describe you? Don't assume that. Let's ask that. I think one of the, the, the sort of litmus tests of whether or not we're a servant of all is by watching how we respond to people who treat us like servants. I think of the people in your life that treat you like servants. They'll just kind of take those, those digs at you to kind of, just kind of shear off a little dignity. Right? They offer you very little respect. They think very little of you. If you want to know if you're becoming a servant of all, if you're actually growing in biblical greatness, ask yourself, how do you treat those who treat you like a servant? Have you gotten low enough down there with Jesus that you can even serve them? You know, I think this is generally true for all of us in the room. Most of us live with an undetected pursuit of worldly greatness. It's just kind of there, but it's, it's probably somewhat low grade. We could probably justify a lot of it, but it's a pursuit of worldly greatness. It's how can we get there and other people down here? And it's in those moments that we don't get worldly greatness that clarify and make us aware of just how much we're living for it. So, so how do you treat people that treat you like servants? Jesus is saying, here's what biblical greatness looks like. You can become a slave of all, a servant of all, even of those who treat you like servants. Jesus is saying, that, that's, that is biblical greatness. Your spouse, your neighbor, your in-law, your friend, whoever those people are that treat you like servants, that you can get down underneath them and become a servant even there. Jesus is looking at that and saying, that right there is what will be celebrated forever, forever as great. He's saying, you, you, you can take the, the, the cheap route and you can, you can pursue kind of worldly greatness now and you might even get a little bit of fame and a little bit of celebration now, but what's going to be celebrated forever is that, those people who can become servants of all. For the next billion years, that, that's what's gonna be celebrated. Servants of all. Now, I, I wanna take a moment to apply this to our church uh, more broadly. I so badly want our church to be great in the eyes of God, don't you? I mean, don't, don't we want a church like that? I mean, we all want to be a part of a church that when God looks at it, he's saying, yes, I love that. that, that that's the sort of church that we're going to be celebrating for all eternity. I, I, want, to be a, I want to be a part of a church like that. And a great church has nothing to do with its size, has nothing to do with its notoriety, nothing to do with its programs, its preaching, its music. A great church is made up of men and women who have lowered themselves, who have gotten down underneath everyone else and made themselves servants of all. 
That is what a great church looks like. It's full of men and women who who have let go of the rights to their life and said yes to lowering themselves, giving their life away in service and sacrifice for the sake of others. That is the sort of church that Jesus looks at and calls great. That's what he's after. That's what we want. Collectively, that's what we want. And today, we're just calling today Serve Sunday. As we kind of move into the fall, this is actually a really important day in the life of our church. And there's two things I'm praying happen today. Two things. One is for those who already right now, you are down underneath our church and you have become a servant. I mean, you are living this. Jesus is looking at your life right now and saying, do you see that person right there? That, that is greatness. The, the world would never call that greatness, but that person right there, they have lowered themselves. They have, they have gotten down under the world around them and they have become a servant of all. There are some in the room who that is you. And right now, I just, I'm praying that today the Lord would just affirm that in you encourage that in you, refresh you in that work of becoming a servant of all. Man, I, there are some in the room who that is you, and I'm just praying that the Lord would affirm you and encourage you this morning. That's for those who are serving. Now, there's also a big wide swath of, of our church family right now who aren't serving. And this is a Sunday that, that we're praying the Lord would take that deep down desire that he planted in you to, to, to be great And it would be directed at the things that Jesus calls great. That you would take that desire and aim it in Jesus' direction. Not at making servants of all, but at becoming a servant of all. And it's a Sunday that we want to encourage you towards serving. Now, not just generically in your life, but we want to take a, a Sunday, this Sunday, to point you towards serving in a particular place in your church family. So so we want to have Sunday where we can just emphasize that and and hold that up. Now, I want to just use an illustration to frame the two ways people think about churches, two broad ways you can think about a church. One way is you can think about a church like a hotel. Now, think about a church as a hotel. When you stay at a hotel, uh, when your bed's made, who made it for you? They they did, right? You walk into a room and, and your pillow's fluffed. Right? The bathroom's clean. Right? right? The room's clean. And if, if that hotel's like really on their game, they have even folded that last square of toilet paper for you, right? I mean, it's incredible. Now, who did all of that for you? They did. They set everything up. Now, all you get to do and all you have to do is come and just consume what has been set up for you. That's a hotel. And that's one way to look at a church. Now, there's also another way to look at a church, and it's not as a hotel. It's looking as uh, your church as a home. Now, now, think about your home. A home is a much different thing than a hotel, isn't it? When you go home today, if your bed's made, and I hope it is, who made your bed? You did, right? You, you did. If your house is clean when you go home today, how did your house get clean today? Because you cleaned it. If there's not a mound of dishes in the sink right now, why is that? It's because you did the dishes, right? If there is a square folded at the end of your toilet paper roll, how did that happen? It's because you folded it, right? That's the only way it happens as a church or in a home. 
Now, okay, before I apply that analogy, I want to say, I want to preface it with one thing. Some people came in today, some of us came in today, and, and we are so beaten up and bruised. I mean, we came in with a mega big limp. We just have like an ounce left in the gas tank. And if that's you and you've kind of stumbled into Stonegate today, I just want to give you the permission to take a deep breath. You can ignore the next few things I'm about to say. And I just want to allow you to be refreshed by Jesus. If that's you, it would just be our honor and privilege to serve you today and to help you today. So you can ignore what I'm about to say. Now, for, for the rest of us in the room, we're here. We're okay. And this is our church home. It's not a hotel. It's a home. But... We are treating it like a hotel, not a home. We just expect to come and everything be set up, everything be perfect, everything be ready, and we just get to come and consume. And that just doesn't work if it's a home. The only way any church will ever be healthy, will ever be all that God's intended it to be, has created it to be, is if the people that make up that church get out of hotel view of that church and into home view of that church. Like If it's going to happen, if we're going to be everything that God has called us to be, it requires all of our collective gifts being plugged into the body to make it that. It is the only way a church will ever be healthy is if the collective group of people that make up that church embrace the way of Jesus, embrace the way of lowering themselves, becoming a servant of all. That's the only way it happens. So to, to help apply that and, and just kind of flesh that out, there should be a card on your seat uh, when you sit down. It, it's just a serve card. Why don't you grab that card and, uh, and take a look at that card? Listed on that card are ways for you to pursue biblical greatness. That's, that's what's on that card. It contains opportunities for you to grow in becoming a servant of all. Now, when you look at the back of that card, there's, there's many sort of opportunities listed on the back of that card, and some are going to look at that list and instantly gravitate to some of those areas where, where you already know, this is kind of how my gifts work. It's where I've traditionally kind of served a church and, and fit the best. So, so if that's you, great. Then mark those down and, and kind of pursue that. But others in the room, you're going to look at that list and you're going to think, man, I just, wh whatever is most helpful, that's what I want to do. Whatever is most helpful for us as a church family, yes to that. that that's where I, I would love to step into. So I want to just give you the, the maybe two prioritized needs in our church, maybe the two critical kind of spaces right now in our church. Uh, one is in our kids' ministry. Um, I like to talk about it as our biggest need and our greatest opportunity. It's both of those. Um, think about what happens in a kid's uh, ministry. Each week, you are teaching pre-Christians, little boys and girls who, who Jesus is going to rescue and redeem and probably do that soon in a lot of their lives. And you're getting the chance to teach them the good news of Jesus week in, week out, just putting Jesus on the bottom shelf for them to see and savor and enjoy and get to know. And Jesus is going to rescue a lot of them. And do you know um, who is going to have had a huge hand in that happening? Those ministry volunteers in there. They're going to have played a huge role in that rescuing work of Jesus. So it's a huge need in our church, and it's a huge opportunity in our church. So if you're just kind of open and free, that would be a great place to pursue. The second one is leading groups. 
leading groups. We are uh, in the middle of a season of trying to plant 15 to 20 new Stonegate groups. And and this is frontline disciple making in our church. It it is um, front lines of encouraging and walking with people and loving people. It is a great opportunity for you to learn how to become a servant of all. By, by leading a group. It, it's an incredible opportunity for us. So if you would like to pursue that, man, let our group team know. They would love to know that so they can begin that journey of walking beside you toward that. Now, with that card, here's what I'm asking you to do with it. Uh, during the service, I would love for you just to, to keep kind of praying over that list, thinking over that list, and uh, to fill that card out, to check those boxes that you might be interested in, in serving. And then you can do two things with that card today. One option is you can put it in the offering basket at the end of the service. So, so that's one option. A better option is for you to take that card out to our kind of ministry booths that are out in the lobby. So these 10 areas have a table slash booth set up in the lobby. Our kids and student ministry are out front with the big bus, all that. So, so they're all out there. And if you would like to, to investigate serving in these 10 areas, just take that card out to that ministry table. And that would help us start facilitating that next step sooner than later. So we're actually going to end our service uh, early today to give you an opportunity to do just that, to interact with those 10 ministry tables out in the lobby and and out in front of our church. So I just want to encourage you to do that. You can put it in the offering basket, but better yet, you can take it to one of those booths um, out there in the lobby. Okay, last thing, and and then we're going to land the plane right here. The last thing Jesus does is show the way to greatness. And you see this in verse 45, the way to greatness. Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think about the movement in this passage. Jesus has exposed their their desire for greatness. He, He then redirects that desire for greatness. And he shows us how to be great. It's not by making servants of all, but by becoming a servant of all. And we would all take a step back and just say that isn't Jesus the, the supreme example of that? I mean, he, he is the great example. He, he gave up his life so that we could have it. He served us so that we could be saved. But what this passage is showing us is that we need more than a great example. We actually need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus if we're ever going to become servants of all. We, we actually need the good news of Jesus. And you see that in that one word in verse 45, ransom. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. That word tells us two things. The first thing is it, is it shows us something about our condition. In our 21st century language, ransom is not an everyday word. But in that first century Jewish world, it was an everyday word. Listen to one commentator uh, comment on that. He says, Ransom was a familiar image in the Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures. It was the price paid to liberate a slave, a prisoner of war, or a condemned person. Now think about what that word's implying. That, That word is implying that we are the one enslaved. We are the condemned person. We are the ones locked in chains for which we have no key. It's saying something about our condition, that our condition is so grave and so hopeless that we need someone else to come into our world and rescue us. It shows us something about our condition, but it also shows us something about God's provision. Jesus is saying, I came to be your servant. I came to give my life as your ransom. 
I, paid, I came to, to pay with my very own life the, the price for your liberation. I came to pay the price to, to liberate you from that enslaving self-centeredness that one of, wants to make everyone else your servants and, and to free you up to actually become a servant. I came as your ransom, my life, death, and resurrection to accomplish that, to, to make you a servant of all. And it's when that settles deep down in our bones, Jesus as our ransom, that, that becoming a servant of all is possible. And I'll just close with these two examples, James and John. Think about these two men. We'll, we'll take James, for instance. In Mark chapter 10, James is a prideful man. He is just drunk on selfish ambition. That, that's the James we, we meet in Mark 10. But our man James changed. When we catch up with him in the book of Acts, he's a humble man. He is leading the church in Jerusalem, and he's living to serve Jesus and the precious people of that church, all the way to the point that in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we read this about James. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now just ask yourself the question, what changed James? I mean, how did he go from that Mark 10 grabbing for that seat of greatness? How did he go from that to, I will gladly die for the sake of Jesus and these people? How did that happen? Answer, Jesus died as a ransom. That's what happened. How about John? In Mark 10, he is self-confident. He's prideful. He is out to make everyone else his servants. Uh, but later, John went on to write five of the New Testament books. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, John says this. By this we know love. Here's how we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And now listen to what John says. And we, we shouldn't grab for, for greatness in the world's way, but, but we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How in the world did John go from, from Mark chapter 10 to that answer? Jesus died as a ransom. That, that's how. Jesus lived perfectly in our place. He died as a servant of all, receiving all of God's wrath for our sin. He rose from the dead on the third day, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. And that changed them. It, it changed them. It, it freed them up to lay down their agenda of making servants of all and to pick up Jesus' agenda of becoming a servant of all. And Stonegate, Jesus dying as our ransom. That, the good news of Jesus, just like it changed them, can change us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.